Yeah, that's the uh, where uh, let's see. Well, yeah, that's the that's a techno salado uh, cheer that I got from Totokayo actually. Um, on my way back, uh, I'm saying my way back, but like you know, one day I was going to the sample sale. Um, that they had when I was at Nike, actually, and I doubled back to the store when they were like cleaning out and moving mm-hmm. from the 54 Crosby Street location, I believe it was. Okay. And uh, and yeah, they were getting rid of everything, and I knew uh, that the furniture was crazy because when we first started in 2016, all of the guys, like we were like you know tasked with moving all of that furniture up and down those you know I think it was like the bottom level, mid tier level, top level. Yeah, women's level and then roof, so five five stories, and so the men were like tasked with like moving all that furniture around. So I was like, oh wow, there's an opportunity to at least buy yeah. a few of the pieces. And so I got this techno salado chair uh, from the 1960s, and the patina is beautiful. It's aging gracefully. Um, yeah, it looks great. We were kind of talking about that earlier today, John and I. Um, just Toto Kylo, the whole story <laughs> of Toto Kylo, kind of. The rise, downfall, yeah. aid supply, uh, all that stuff. Just because where we're at, where we're at now. I mean, aid supply was like the place in Richmond at that point. Yeah, and it is funny. There's so many people that used to work for aid uh, supply or Total Kylo that are actually in Richmond. Yeah, like uh, I mentioned to you before, oh, Chris Green, or well, this Chris Green, um, Ethan. What is Ethan's last name? Hickerson. He did some of the photo, uh, photography. Got it. Um, and then Christina uh, Campitel. She was more on the. Was she more on the need on the need side than the Toto Kylo side? I know she was doing like customer service. If I remember. Yeah. So it's just kind of funny because like, uh, obviously you were at Toto Kylo, and I, that's how you and I yeah initially met. Like back in I don't even know, remember the year. Maybe it was like 2015. Something like that. I came into the store. I tried on a pair of Rico and his Geo baskets, and I remember distinctly because you were wearing a, a Kiko Kostadinov, yeah, a Stussy reconstructed sweater before like anybody was even. It was why you know doing that. You know, so it's a funny story. I have two stories about that actually. So obviously, it's a contemporary men's and women's store. So there was a bit of like apprehension about having this guy walking around the store working in the store with the hoodie on you know but I, the way I merchandise it it was like nah like he can he can wear that um, yeah. and so it was crazy because I feel like in two ways it was like on the fashion side of it I was wearing you know just cotton with a screen printed you know, Stussy on it but it was reconstructed by Kiko Kostanov and then you know he had that like cachet of like Nick Knight and show studio and all that type of stuff like that and so um Philip actually, Philip was like Jill's right hand, and he was like, "No, it's kind of like in the in the like the realm of like Yoji. Like it looks like something that Yoji would do. Like he can he sh- he should be able to wear that." And so he was the one that made it like the decision to say, "Yeah, you can like rock that." So that was a part of my uniform. And it's funny because I would wear it with like Dries trousers mm-hmm. and like you know uh, maybe Marcon like Doc Martens or something like that or what have you. And like now you look several years later, Dries and Stussy does a collaboration. Yeah. And like that, like that is like a full circle moment for me because it's like, wow, I was I was on it in, in the way that it could be merchandised. And then yeah. on top of that, you know, you had like the musical component, whereas like I was a fan of Griselda and like, you know, like all those guys like yeah. that. And I'm juxtaposing that music with selling, you know, $17,000 of the row, you know, 
uh, baby lamb jackets, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's like that juxtaposition in 2015, 2016 didn't make sense. It was like, no, we don't want this abrasive and aggressive music. Or, and it wasn't even aggressive. It was just more so like the lyrics was, it was in Bossa Nova because we would, we would, it was so eclectic in there where like, I guess you can say like my retail family kind of took me in, like Allen and uh, Wolfie, like they came from Barney's, like up here, okay. up east side, and they brought that like that uh, that prestige of retail, like high end retail, and the way you go about it. And they taught me how to sell. They taught me how to do retail, and so like, but they also brought those influences, right? Like, so it was funny because you know Kanye was doing, you know, uh, Father Stretch My Hands was the Like and Pablo album yeah. where he was doing. Uh, uh, what was the song we did with Tiana Taylor? Uh, and where she was dancing, Jono and uh, Fade, and so Fade, it, like those records, those house records, we were already listening to that. So when that album came out, I was like, oh wow, like I've been listening to Theo Parrish, and like I know what these things are, like, I know what these sounds are. They're interesting because like Allen and those guys brought that that level of like you know um eclectic like music taste to Tolikayo. and I brought both like the R and B and soul and you know hip hop elements to it, but it all made sense. And that's why I still to this day, I tell people that was the best working environment I've had, including my time at Nike. Probably, you know, uh, I guess you could maybe remove the Virgil moment from that. Mm-hmm. But like as a whole, you know, that like Tordecayo moment was the best working environment because we had like Grant, you know, that came from Dover was selling jewelry, but he came away as a manager. Me as like this freelancer entertainment industry, streetwear, things of that nature. Alan and Woofie high-end retail other than mm-hmm. the case for women's retail and so it was like a nice energy and then jill was the mastermind Totakayo was literally jill's like jill and philip i don't want to leave uh him out either because he was like and cassandra um i don't want to leave them out because they were a lot they were the, the point of view as well like in terms of like what the, what does the downtown new york city and mm-hmm. contemporary men's women's client look like hey you were essentially my client a guy that understood how to merchandise you know Issei home trousers with the PlayStation bitches PlayStation T Nikes or whatever it may be right sure so yeah. you know yeah Todakaya was amazing man like and that's where this cheer this cheer came from and it was it was a it was a deal it was a big deal for me to go back and be able to to grab that when the store was like going through like this this uh this period of change when need supply okay. yeah and it and from what I've heard it happened relatively quickly where what is it Need need to go need supply took or bought out Toto Kylo well, and that it was Herschel's supplier. Yes. Yeah. And then from there it survived a, a, what, a few more years and again where Supreme is in now. And then both ended up defunct. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Which is sad. I mean it I've I've been thinking about it a little bit more in terms of the life cycle of certain stores. Um Sorry, uh, just the life cycle of certain stores and how long they actually last in the industry and how long they're actually around for, how much, how long they actually make an impact uh, in the industry. Yeah. Um, example, uh, Macy's in the 80s is a prime example of, uh, you could say, a high fashion store that ended up not doing high fashion anymore and obviously it has a completely different business model macy's actually sold yoji back in the 80s and 90s i've seen garments that have macy's tags on them which i found hilarious but i mean it just goes to kind of show you the 
the the time that it was in when it was made who was a player then but then as you can see the kind of life cycle of everything changing and get bigger department stores like Birdors or um nordstrom and all all the others that still are around today but they're big box retailers um and those seem to be i don't want to say indestructible but they just stay around much longer than you could say a niche store yeah so just taking it from the perspective on on like what constant practice does it's like we've been around we've, i've been doing this eight years the store's been popular for maybe three like how do you continue that level of um what's the right word uh can continue that consistency of being in the public eye and doing the right things buying the right products but while also maintaining the authenticity of what you're actually interested in rather than just buying whatever every other store is buying and i think that's like the hardest thing to do is scale that scale the taste without diluting it at the same time is like the hardest thing and so you have these stores that come in like toto kylo where they're doing something very well right but then something goes wrong along from a business standpoint and it's it's here for a couple of years and then it's gone and you see that with a few you see that with stores all the time there are very few that stand the test of time like dover street is an example of a store i think that does it relatively well obviously um and then um i mean another one is if in new york yes if it has been around forever i mean like i think from the 80s if i'm wrong i'm kind of guessing on that but I think they've been around a very, very long time. Yeah, with their audiences, they they focus on a very, very extreme niche market. I would say even more than Dover does. Um, so there's like different types of business models you can actually do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, if as uh, John and I were talking about on the drive up here, there's like different ways of approaching it from a business standpoint. So you can go very, very niche, and your audience is very focused and concise. Right. You can go very broad market, which is an example of like you could say maybe a need supply where you're focusing on volume rather yes. than like a very core customer. And I think that the medium point, which Dover does pretty well, is that, that middle point where they have the low tier, the high tier and kind of in the middle. Yeah. And I think that's how you, you're able to offer very those weirder products, but also have the more obtainable products for people mm-hmm. and get people in the door. And then at some point they start going up the, up the ladder in yep. terms of what they're interested in. And having that diversity of products is very, I would say quite difficult to match with each other. Like you're saying on the high and the low, and how do you seamlessly put those together? And that's something we always consider just with concept practice itself is like, how do you kind of mesh stuff from 80s 90s 2000s even contemporary now things from now how how do those all kind of fit in an aesthetic um direction and i think you're having an opinion on something I, I just i think in order to kind of survive a lot you need to have an opinion but your opinion needs to also be able to be flexible and you need to be able to change with the times and kind of evolve and your, yeah. your tastes evolve if you just stay doing the same thing um i mean yeah, I mean, rigidity, uh, I, I don't see that being uh, a plus or a pro for a business. Um, I think Jill was able to translate her opinion or her, or her point of view um, and be able to, to buy for a client opposed to, you know, uh, uh, buying for the bottom line. And that, I actually just finished writing an article, um, I'm cleaning it up right now, but I, I'm writing an article about, um, you know, 
the the consumer, the consumer having a look into the looking glass and the products that they see right now is indicative of who they are. The stores are holding a mirror up to you. The products that's being created are holding a mirror up to you because you're telling the the market makers and the the business people that this is what you like. And it's and it and it reeks of being lazy, being a label whore and things of that nature. But that also stems from the retail sector because the retail sector is more so buying for Instagram based off of Instagram engagement and, and mm-hmm. impressions and things of that nature. And so that's informing their decision making, which then you know, gives the, the the customer a certain thing, which is nothing but a carbon copy of what they see on social media. And mm-hmm. therefore, it's almost like a homogeny in, in a sense of like, there is no uh, 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 opinion. There is a monolith. And, yeah. and, and a monolith is just nothing but groupthink. It's a collective thought. And social media is a snapshot of that collective thought, you know. And so I think with Jill, she was literally an artist. You know, and that might have been something that may have worked against her in, in, in I guess, in the uh, in the end, uh, you know, depending on how you want to look at it. But the Herschel guys came in and acquired Tortacayo simply because of the business aspect of it, but not because of the direction of the company itself. Like creatively, we were able to uh, uh, set the tone for what things looked like downtown in a sense. You know, outside of us, it was La Grasson and, and uh, opening ceremony. Yeah, I open ceremony. Yeah, on uh, Howard Street across from Rick Owens. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, people were coming up the block five minutes up Crosby Street to come shop with us because we had Betmont. We had uh, uh, the, the new Raft Bob, you know, in a, in a very unique way. A Rick Bob that was different from just five minutes down the street because Jill was buying for a customer. Phil, Philip was uh, was was buying for a customer. Cassandra was, was uh, giving her opinion about what she thought the woman should look like, the Tordecaio woman should mm-hmm. look like. And was informing her decisions based off of her personal taste, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think that just substantiates the point you're making right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's like, I always, I always say it's, it's left and right brain thinking. Yes. You have to do both. Yes. Um, from a, if like you want to make it actually viable. Um, I mean, we do that. I do that when I buy products as well. There's always something, there's different levels of factors for buying or purchasing an item. Certain items we know will do better social media content wise. There are other items we just buy because we just purely like them. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like balancing the two. You you understand what's going on in the trend cycle, what people are currently into. You kind of factor that in a little bit, but then you also have your personal taste into it. But then you also have things that you think about, oh, I know we could do this type of reel with it or this type of content with it. And it'll, it'll drive kind of engagement and advertise. We basically think of it in a way as kind of like advertising as well. Um, but at the end of the day, the, all the products kind of need to work together and you need to have that kind of opinion or perspective. And it's, it's hard to scale. Like I said, it's hard to scale that, but I think that's, that's the fun of it. And once you start losing that and focusing solely on the, the monetary aspect, it becomes more of a chore. Yes. Yes. Than anything. Yeah. You know, um, I guess the first thing I would say is that 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 more so substantiates than the magic isn't a minutia because really it's your point of view all the way through, not just the buy, but like the way it's going to translate to your customer, the way it will translate, you know, on social media, um, you know, and I think that that is more so what people need to like, you know, have a put more emphasis on, you know, opposed to trying to copy the the final product. You know, you have to, you know, have an aim like constant practice can be an aim. I'm almost certain that you're creating constant practice for it to be an aim mm-hmm. uh, because you want to be able to set a standard by saying this is this differentiates us and this is who we are. 
But at the same time, you know, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, a, a lot of people are more so looking at the final product. And I guess I can substantiate that by saying, you know, me being a freelancer and things of that nature, or at least when I was doing it during that ten, my tenure of a freelancer and after I left Nike, it was people looking for the results that we got at Nike when I did the Virgil project opposed to uh, mm -hmm. any other project I've done. They were looking for the end result of that project opposed to realizing that that individual was a, was an octopus. He was different. And that is what you have to, you know, uh, put an emphasis on the product, the, the actual idea. And then you build on top of that mm -hmm. on the ancillary things. Yeah, people. I, I feel like I, I, I guess I want to ask you this question. Like, why, why do you I like to ask people? It, why do you follow the store? Like, what's your opinion on it? Why do I follow? Yeah, the, our our concept practice store. Uh, well, I feel like it's 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 speaking to me in terms of just versionizing. Uh, the, mm -hmm. It's very uh, uh, directional point of view. Um, you're you're trying to get across something, uh, and I think that no one has that point of view but you. Um, I think that it's a level of like tech wear, but also like you know a, a bit of minimalism at times, but also an attention to detail. Like you're you're the only one that I'm going to see a junior porter jacket on their site. Right. Like mm -hmm. I'm not going to see that anyway. I mean, even if I go to Aina, you know, or, or about glamour, you know, these stores is within the same realm as constant practice. But the but your focus when you're on Yahoo Japan or wherever you source your items from, mm -hmm. I know that this is a this was intentionally chosen and it's speaking to me. Um, I, I can only say the offering. I mean, I bought multiple pieces from you. I have yeah. this, the Kiko Stussy pullover, the Issei, you know, yeah. blouse and jacket. The, the watermelon joint. Oh, it's beautiful. Actually, no, the Bottega, and we were just talking about how the vibrant colors were coming back because you know they yeah, have that yeah. green box and stuff mm -hmm. like that, and they had obviously have you know pieces that mirror the same color. And I came in with that jacket on, and I was like, "Yeah, this is not even from you know recent times. This is an old Issei piece that I got from my friend's website." And so that is the point I'm making. You're bringing something that almost feels modern and contemporary, but really is something from. Yeah, from from, the, from another uh, period of time. Yeah, it's how do you, how do you find products that transcend the time they were made and yes. and that can fit into the current fr time frame? It's what we do. And then the other part I like to add to that, like I think everything you said is accurate, at least how I interpret it, and I know Jonathan does the same. But uh, the other bit to it is obviously trying to take the piss out of everything. All, all the content we do is obviously a bit lighthearted. We're trying to make it more approachable not so serious because that's how we are i mean we dick around in the office all the time yeah just doing dumb shit trying to think of funny ways to do it um because at the end of the day our customer like we charge a lot for the product and there's a reason for that but there's lots of people that don't actually get to purchase anything and they're there for kind of entertainment value they want to see something interesting they don't want they want to see something they haven't seen before so it's kind of like satisfying all those needs interesting product humor uh kind of being like like a days of cool like my voice now is a meme to everybody and that was none of it's ever the intention it's just kind of the repetition and it becomes something and and that's kind of the brand is uh, our friend ron calls it being kind of cowboy style with branding um but like we kind of just kind of throw stuff at a wall and see what sticks yeah and again it's just kind of trial and error like our reels have progressed uh substantially like i feel like we know what we're doing and how we like to do our content and the aesthetic we go for when we put things together and if it hits it hits it doesn't it doesn't but um i i, I feel like a lot of people that i ask that question to are basically in the same vein what you're kind of describing and i'm happy to hear that because 
yeah, that's kind of the goal we're, we're aiming for and we want people to feel that way. Whether you buy something or not, uh, if you just support the store and follow it or whatever, that that's all we really care about at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. I mean, that, that it rings true. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I was actually like roaming through Soho one day um, and I had my ETP hat on, the records hat. Mm-hmm. And a guy that was a photographer, he initially stopped me because he wanted me to be a part of his like street style series that they were working on. And um, and he was like, man, um, you know, I really like what you're doing with ETP. You know, uh, it represents this, it represents that. And I was like, wow, I'm glad you were able to pull those things yeah. from it in terms of just like uh, the level of intention. Like we're not just trying to merchandise things and create merchandise things and make it a, a brand. It's You are, but it's very subtle the way you're doing it. Yeah. You're not just explicitly like saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why you should follow us. It's more like you do the content, you put all the pieces together visually, and it just kind of speaks to the person. And they kind of gather that from all the bits and pieces of yeah. information, and then they form their own opinion. You're not just kind of like shoving it down their throat, like you should think this about us. Yes, and I I hate that. How <laughs> Brand said too that it's it's crazy. It's actually very condescending when you think about it because yeah. you're telling the consumer that you don't think that they're smart enough to be able to digest what it is that you're trying to communicate as a brand. I I don't talk down to the audience. I don't look for the lowest common denominator in the audience. I'm looking for the highest common denominator, as as Peterson would say, I'm on the side of you that's aiming up. So if you're not, if 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 you're looking for uh, me to slap radio on, you know, uh, a t-shirt every you know week or so, so that we can hit certain numbers, and then that's just not what it is. Like it, you know, Brian actually of, of Hip Studios, mm-hmm. he said to me a long time ago, he was like, it feels like ETP is sort of a dojo. In a sense, it's a is a way that you, it's, an, it's a philosophy in a way that you approach life, and you and you translate that well into the company. And I was like, that might be the the best way that I've heard somebody explain it because if you think about it, there's only been one music project in terms of you just like output itself, but all of the ancillary things are the things that drive home the brand story, mm-hmm. and that's the real goal is to drive home the brand story so that I can communicate what it is that we're trying to communicate. You know, and so um, I think I've been able to uh, hone in on that direction, like, you know, post cash app moment and stuff like that. Um, you know, it initially started out as being a record label, but then, you know, we had to regroup, you know, and figure out, you know, what it is that we wanted to do as a company. And I and I always had like this, this, um, this like uh, this desire to communicate something way broader than music itself. The music itself is just a soundtrack to what it is that we do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. It's just a soundtrack to everything. And so to make that the focal point kind of felt empty in a sense, like it was nothing substantial behind it because a, 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 an album release is more so a brand moment. It's you consume the music, you consume the product, and then the moment is over. Mm-hmm. But I know that ETP is more than that because it's really me. Like I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring everything that I am to the, to, to the company. And so, you know, um, I would say I end up, it really hit home for me when, uh, when I saw the Richard Branson documentary and I realized, and I, and I heard and saw someone be able to articulate what I felt in a sense. Like I knew I wanted to add a radio division to amplify what it is that we're doing under the records company and be able to you know, uh, bring, uh, uh, give a platform to the voices that I like, you know, in the sociopolitical sphere and geopolitical sphere and, you know, whatever. Right. Uh-huh. But 
when I heard him say their origin story started with a student body and a newspaper being sociopolitically tapped into the times and how them being tapped into the times gave them almost like a one up on everybody else accidentally because they were they were ingratiated within the, the, the culture at that time, you know, like the, the acts, the sex epistles and things of that nature, like those bands that we still reference to this day, the exorcist, the, mm-hmm. the famous exorcist song, um, like these are records that came from Virgin Records only because they were authentically aware of what was happening during the times. And they were like they, they were able to keep their finger on the pulse in that way. And when you can authentically be tapped into the times that you're living in, then by definition, you should be able to make the best art. Yeah. Your art should be timeless because it is a signifier of a period that may no, may no longer be here. But the music can kind of give you a semblance of what that felt like in a period of time. And I think that, you know, when when you look at the music industry, there as there has been uh, an intentional effort to do away with artist development, to do away with brand building. They already want you to be built by the by the algorithm. They want you to be built by the algorithm, not by a fan base. So they can then come in and put poor liquidity into the moment and then, you know, capitalize on it. Mm. And that goes back to retail and it not being stores, not buying for a customer or a person that you are. You're this archetype of a person, but rather the bottom line. And that's a floating, that's a floating target. You know, it's not, you're not, it's not nothing meaningful that someone can hold on to. No, it's just a quick hit and you're done. That's all. And that's it. And then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. So. I mean, at ETP, media is the new vision, essentially. And that's what it's like. You know, podcasts will will live under that. And I feel like the infrastructure that we set up, um, it allows for me to, like, live in this space here, be able to give the proper attention to the artists and help them develop and be able to really craft the sound and the brand itself. And then when the music is on the level, we all feel that it's on the level. Then we put it out under records where I'll have some money that I'm talking to a couple people right now to run that because that's not something I want to be able to want to have to devote all of my time to. So, sure. um, but I, but I appreciate you pulling from that, like what you said in terms of the brand, because that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and on, like I said, <laughs> like the, co- the whole concept practice thing too, it's like at this point, we don't even have any branding and that's kind of the, at this point, somewhat of the that's reason it's, <laughs> it, well, it adds room for just a- interpretation, right? But we're obviously we're actually starting on figuring out and sorting out the branding that feels true to us. It's a it's a fun process. Yeah. To say the least. But um yeah, just trying to get it to like what you're thinking about with uh ETP media. Mm-hmm. Um just kind of having more of an umbrella of, of different things that you do mm-hmm. while not, not forcing the branding down people's yeah. People's throats and just kinda of letting it letting it be. Yeah. Having an opinion making products based on that opinion and stuff like that. So, so what do you see, you know, once the branding, you know, gets in, and obviously I don't want you to go too much into detail while things are in this formative stages, but what do you see, um, for the company, you know, after the branding is is solidified because branding, you know, I, I think people don't understand the difference between a logo and a brand identity, like the identity itself, you know, allows for you to tell the, the brand story even more. And I've seen some earlier things and they look really good. Mm-hmm. And so like, what, what are, what, what are you planning to do once that is in a, in a place where you feel like it's ready for the consumer's eyes? There are a couple of things that we're working on, um, on the side. One of them's definitive. Don't know if the branding 
we're hopefully going to get the branding to be part of that uh, project. If not, it's okay. But um, hopefully that should be coming out. I want to say this is just a random guess, probably sometime in May. Okay. It's with a UK brand, um, and it, it'll fit in with the store. And okay. we should be having a lot of fun with the promo for that and doing some some type of like flight branding, a little bit more formal in terms of the approach than what we typically do. I think that's one thing we'll start doing from brand identity, I guess, maybe. Yeah. That's a good way to put it is we're going to have a mixed batch of uh, informal content, which is like the stuff we typically do for the page on Constant Practice, mm-hmm. where it's just kind of in a bathroom doing that, doing the normal thing with the product. Um, but then we want to do a bit more of the formal side of things where we're going to have better photography, um, slightly brand the content and the imagery and stuff like that. So you kind of start to get the ethos, but a lot of that ethos of the store that it is now, it, we're going to try to infuse that into more of the formal mm-hmm. um, content as well. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have that bit of dry, a bit of humor to it. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of us, honestly, just kind of dicking around and having fun with stuff because the product that we're making, it's just, it's, it's funny. It's great. If it's in the store, I just have to say it's a gorilla, but that's all I'll leave it at. I love that you, you, you make an emphasis on fun because when I was at Nike, um, my boss, you know, uh, uh, Paul at the time, he said, you know, work is supposed to be fun. You know, it's supposed to be rewarding. It is supposed to be fun. Um, and uh, but it's also supposed to be hard work. And, and me knowing you personally, I know that you're a hell of a worker. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I actually want to I think it's a great segue to get into sort of kind of mapping like just your journey. Sure. Um, you know, like when we first met, you know, you was telling me like, yeah, I'm originally from Kentucky. Da da da. And it's like, you know, I think I just thought that was like really interesting to see someone come from Kentucky, uh, in, was in tech space and then. Fast forward several years later, you're now with a full like you know uh, mm-hmm. e-commerce company and with with a with a physical space as well. Yeah. So like just like walk me through that because I actually don't know that story. Sure. Also, just shout out for Jenna for working as hard as I did, if not more. <laughs> and Kevin's also tried her first employee. <laughs> He's dead over there on the couch. Enjoy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I grew up in, uh, I was actually born in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. I moved around a bit. My dad traveled a lot for work. He worked for uh, Young Brands, okay. which is Taco Bell, KFC, okay. stuff like that. Uh, California for a little bit as a kid. I ended up in Louisville, Kentucky. Shout out to Ville. Uh, um, and uh, as a kid, grew up playing soccer and stuff like that. I ended up getting recruited by Stevens Institute of Technology, which is actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. Okay. So in the dirty jersey armpit. <laughs> um, I was there for four years. I played soccer all, all four years. Um, had an amazing time doing that. Um, but the, in terms of the fashion aspects kind of coming into play and also the IT side of things. So I went to school for business and technology. Um, don't know how much that actually helped for what I actually do now. There's maybe a little bit of crossover. Um, but the fashion interest kind of stemmed from um, coming here after living in Louisville. I never really cared about what I dressed in for a very long time until maybe I was like 17 or 18. And then I started getting into J. Crew, I guess you could say somewhat of a fashion space at that point in time. That's hashtag menswear days. Yeah, exactly. 2010, 2013. Yeah, getting into that a little bit. Um, 
got an undercut haircut, short, super short on the sides, longer on the tops, like a back kind of look. This is kind of me experimenting like all, all teenagers do. Um, I got a job working in IT before graduating college. I had that secured uh, my second to last semester in, in college. Um, I worked in the IT space, IT consulting space for seven or eight years. I just finally quit, relieved myself of my duty from the company in November. Um, so f- with them, I don't really know how much I can actually say about it, but it was, uh, I, I was never very happy that I was doing that. It was just a means to, to providing financial support and stability and all that stuff. Um, but it ended up working out in the long run, to be honest, in terms of giving me that runway. Yes, it was a very long runway to kind of build up to, but um, that those seven years were me kind of figuring out everything clothing-wise and what I wanted to do and kind of building the store and getting into a spot where I could actually quit. But the, the IT work is, uh, we work for a lot of, uh, major companies in New York, globally, anything like that. I worked in th- for in Toronto for a bit, working on a uh, e-commerce or not e-commerce, but just a uh, a government website. Um, just doing web website based stuff like that. Um, it's it's honestly it's honestly not that interesting. Mm-hmm. We work for some big pharma companies, mm-hmm. mainly websites using. Uh, tools like uh shit i'm forgetting the name of the tool now um but a lot of those uh website website based platforms where you kind of have the lego pieces you can build the components out and then place them on the page and all that type of stuff i mean it's kind of similar to what shopify does but i see i see it's almost like a SaaS type site cord i don't know if you've heard of site cord before that was one uh tool they use a lot uh, a lot of customizable components, widgets, stuff like that, that you can actually just put on the page and Not develop a lot of pharmaceutical websites for drugs, do the releases for the drugs. So we build the release. I guess the pharmaceutical one is the best example where we would build the websites for the release of uh, drug we- drug websites for pharmaceutical companies. Okay. And uh, there's definitely some knowledge I, I, I gained from doing that work for seven years uh, so I wouldn't say it was all for for not but made some good friends doing that um, but it also like I said it, it kind of allowed me to juggle two things at once I work from home a lot it allowed me to get my work done yeah do some other stuff when I need to yeah come back get more stuff to, for work to do finish that up transition to something else just having that uh having that flexibility helped a lot in terms of the store growth i think if i wasn't kind of working from home a lot it, it, i wouldn't have had obviously that free time if i'm commuting you're spending an hour commuting doing that type of stuff and um it was a fun time i, I think i planned it right in terms of the leave secured myself and um my my family set us up for at least a solid transition into full time with the clothing store, which we've done. 2022 was the first year was full time. And Jonah came on and 2022, 2022 was a good year, but, um, 
and we'll continue to do that. But I think there's definitely other things we can do um, long term that'll be beneficial for the business overall that it will help um, holistically with everything too. Because I, I really think the store is a phenomenal thing. I, I absolutely love doing it, but the same time in terms of growth in terms of what we need to be to make it something actually viable i don't think people actually understand the capital that is required to actually make something viable and to be sustainable first not just one per to pay your employees one that and pay yourself and then if you have significant others or kids and stuff like that how much money is actually needed or required to live comfortably and and enjoy enjoy the things of life and enjoy your work and all that stuff and in order to do that, I think we need to kind of grow in different ways in order to obtain that. Um, and I, my father-in-law was, I think, quite relieved. He's always believed in me in terms of doing this and making it a business, but I think he always knew in the back of his mind in terms of scalability and growth, there's going to be a cap at some point. And I'm starting to see that a little bit more now. That's not saying that we're not going to continue to do what we do. Yeah. Because I I, I love doing what we're doing. Um, it's kind of, like I said, setting it up in different ways and approaching in different ways and still having that uh, clothing, the, the vintage store as its thing where it's very highly curated. It's, it, I would say maybe even become more opinionated. Mm-hmm right? If we start doing something else, right? We have an, a different part of the business doing something else that relates back to the actual vintage store. Um, but, and then the vintage store can be more the niche, right? If we're thinking like if Soho, yes. it becomes very, very opinionated. Whereas the other thing we would do relates back to that references it, right? Um, but you are able to scale it up. Um, and offer something similar to that, right? But maybe in like a different mindset. I'm not trying to say, I don't want to say too much, but no. that's kind of like the general idea. Cause at the end of the day, I think Jonah, Jonah wants to do this a fucking long time. And so do I, but at the same time, we don't want to get burned out because we spend a lot of time operationally just making the content, doing that stuff. And then on top of that, you have to search for clothes. Yes. It, it, it pisses me off when, price people bitching about pricing pisses me off in terms of the amount of effort that we put into actually finding the stuff market it all the operational stuff rent paying ourselves mm-hmm. and there's one yeah there's one piece good luck there's the we have a hoodie here that we brought to show some places and i've only that's the only one i've seen in three years wow why like why will we charge less than somebody charging like, we just went to the Dover Street. Balenciaga hoodie, it was $1,600. Yeah. You look at this hoodie, I guarantee you, you think it's better. Then, obviously, than a Balenciaga hoodie. But I don't. I, I feel like people don't have a perspective on vintage at this point, and I think they should. Yeah. I, um, because there's a lot of work kind of going into all that stuff on top of finding it and doing all that stuff, like I said. Um, and then the fact that there's there's only, like, one. Or you may not find it again. Like there's some stuff I know we probably will never find again. If we do, we'll be lucky. And if we do, it's probably going to be charged a lot more now because we made it a thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, that's that's kind of like the road you run into, unfortunately, with what we do. But um, 
there'll always be some brands that we get interested, we will be interested in probably stocking the store. It's just kind of like that process of collecting and doing all that. It's a lot of time and effort. Like we've been collecting a couple of brands for, actually, did your, so did your bow stuff we started selling? That was two and a half years of collecting. Wow. We have, I think we had 200 pieces before we started selling over two years, but that's like a very rare case. Um, what we say, Mandarina Duck was the one that we collected for about two years. They're basically like four or five brands. We four or five brands we collected for two years to gather up the inventory and then kind of release it. And you you're kind of showcasing it and saying this is the stuff that you should care about from these brands. Yeah. But that whole process, we're sitting on the cash for literally two years. Yeah. It's just tied up in inventory where we can't even release it. Yep. So there's all that back end effort to do that, and then you have to market it all. Which is a separate cost that people don't understand. Even the marketing of it all, the physical and the digital is art. Are, even within those two sectors are separate things, physical marketing and digital marketing. But Yeah. yeah so. it, there's a lot of back-end work that goes into it. And then you you have the whole uh, business model of references. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people understand that yeah. aspect of the business, especially newer people. I mean, I didn't when I got into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those listening, I mean, this is, it's, it's a pretty interesting. So a lot of these brands will buy products simply for references to keep in their archive or to use for a specific collection. And it's not saying that they're stealing it or anything like that. It's literally what people follow the, our page for is to get some type of design inspo to find something where the, it catches their eye. They think it aligns with their brand and then they want to try to replicate, not replicate the exact product, but pull something from it whether that's the type of weave of the knit mm-hmm. or the color or the way they did a pleat and stuff like that so you'll have brands that'll buy product um simply for references and then um leverage it in a way from a business standpoint um and if you think of it that way right they're investing X amount of dollars into a product to then make X amount of products of that, which is going to give them X amount of profit off of it. Yep. And so if I'm at the bottom, I'm at, if we're at the bottom of the barrel, right? It, I'm, I guess that's kind of why it leads into this, why we want to start another part of the business is just because, like, why can't we do something similar to that? Exactly. Especially when you've already cultivated the client that is interested in the actual thing that they're referencing. Exactly. You know, so yeah, I get that. We're the we're the center point for a lot of people. Um when you want to see anything interesting or new online. So let's unpack that real quick, actually. So I wanna take a step back because I know this is something that people will definitely want to get a bit of insight into. I know you don't wanna to have to give away all of the all of the, the, the secrets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I want you to just to unpack your sourcing process. Um, because that is a part of the 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 cost that goes into the price that you're charging, and then also am curious to know about. I know some of the offline conversations that we've had about brands who reference, but also give people a bit of insight into brands who reach out to reference from constant practice. So for the first one, um, the sourcing aspect that can take. It varies. I mean, right now we're kind of struggling to keep up maintaining a daily ritual of hitting websites mm-hmm. um everything's online we try to hit the goal at least my 
the, the goal before what I used to do was literally every single day I'd hit every single website mm. consistently all the time. Um, you do a round basically. You do your round for the day, come back in the morning, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. And then products pop up, right? If you're consistently on it, you'll find stuff. If you're not, you're going to miss stuff. Um, and that's kind of how the name came to gotcha. the repetition. I mean, everything we do is repetition. Um, so I think back then when I was hitting all the sites, it probably would take four hours, maybe a day just scrolling through websites. So you're training yourself. You know what to look for. And, and teaching somebody this is very, teaching somebody this is actually quite difficult. It's very hard to, to teach, in my opinion. I've tried teaching it before. Um, it's repetition. Okay. It's hours. Yes. Well, I think we, there's some, probably, there's probably some fucking expression for this, but it's it's just a skill you acquire for repetition. I mean, I I played soccer. You don't get those skills just by waking up and having them. Some people are yes better than others, but I've probably spent more hours than anybody online looking for clothes, developing that muscle. Yes, it's a muscle memory. It's a twitch. I can literally scroll and I'll stop and I'll, when I see something, and then open it, keep going, keep going, keep going. So I'm very efficient at doing it now at this point. But there's some stuff where the image is so obscure. You may just scroll over it, mm-hmm. but I, but it, for me, I'll click on it because you just don't want to miss the opportunity of seeing. Sure, you don't. It looks like some shit, but then it, you open it and it's like, holy fuck, this is an amazing Issey Miyake item, and it's just photographed horribly. Yeah, and you could have missed it because you don't know the design details. You don't know how it lays when it's flat and how the hood shaped when it's flat on the ground, and you could just miss it because of that. Um, so it, it's all that muscle memory, all that repetition, doing it for eight years now. And it's kind of, okay, you do it for, I did it for, um, undercover for Yoji, for Issei, for Kong, right? And so you take that same idea, same concept, like what makes these products so special from these brands and so desirable? How do you translate that into other brands? Formulated opinion on those brands of all the shit in the sea, like Armani, you have, I don't know, on Yahoo auctions, you have 50, 20,000 listings. How do you pick the one that's actually good? And it's also going to translate well to a U- U.S. Con- uh, consumer. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, there's so much stuff where it's 80s or money, but it looks like shit. Yeah. Like, why would you, uh, how, it, that's, that's what makes it even harder. Mm-hmm. And that's factors into like price too. Like how rare it comes up, how hard it is to find. Does it actually fit in the current zeitgeist or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're putting all that work to sift through a bunch of sh- and so you take that kind of similar approach and do it with our um, like other brands. Mm-hmm. But the, th- the thing is all the upfront research to know what to buy. And sometimes you have to gamble on it. I think the best advice you ever gave me was you learn from buying or from, yeah, you learn from buying and trying stuff, seeing it in person. Yes, a thousand percent. Something like that. Um, and so I, I kind of stuck in my head and I was like, okay, I just got to like buy some things. And then from there, it may spark something and intrigue my interest and be like, okay, this is something to do. And then you go deeper and yeah. deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And that's, go ahead. I, I would say to that point, um, because that is something I, I, I live by, 
Um, there, there are items within my wardrobe that I haven't worn and mm-hmm. skill tags and everything because I'm waiting to find the right shoe to unlock a certain portion of my wardrobe. Like there was a period of time where I didn't wear a lot of jeans primarily because I didn't like how any of my sneakers yeah. with the jeans. But once I found that perfect, like, you know, Bottega boot or something like that, or the Y project boot or something, it opens up my wardrobe in a way that I've never been able to wear it before simply because this item that I had to buy and let sit, but I knew it resonated with me in my wardrobe. I knew it, it fit, you know, my, like my body type and, and aesthetically pleasing the things in the nature. But I was like, it's not ready yet. Like I'm, mm. it's not ready to be brought out yet, or I can't merchandise this on myself in the way that I want to, uh, these Mark Newson, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nikes here, as uh, uh, I, once I grabbed those, it completely opened up my wardrobe in a way during the spring and summer that I just couldn't do before. Like it allowed for a level of ease in the wardrobe that I couldn't have before, you know? Sure. And so I, I, I definitely, I definitely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that like you were saying, where it just kind of sits in your wardrobe, I feel like we do kind of do that with pieces as well, mm-hmm. where we'll find something that interests us. Maybe it's that time to unlock it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you said, maybe we need more time to sit on it, think about it, find maybe find more product from it, see if it's something worth investing time and money into, and it has an interesting perspective. Like we think, I think of it that way too. So it's kind of like, like I said, buying for yourself, buying for your own interest. Maybe you can expand upon that within that same product, that same brand. Maybe you can't, but sometimes you just have to kind of sit there on it and see if you can find other stuff or not. And then if not, then we kind of end up selling it. So of all those brands, you've taken the time, you know, Yahoo Japan and all, like what companies are coming to pillage from your editorial eye for constant practice? What, what brands are coming? Um, I would say we have a lot, a lot of brands yeah. that buy from us. Major houses. Mm-hmm. If you could, you could pick any of them. Exactly. And I would close your eyes, like it just move your pink up and down. Yes. And got you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of funny. I think we learned that over the years too. I was a bit naive to it. I think a year or two ago, mm-hmm. and now I think we know who our core. I mean, we have a large percentage of uh, a large percent of our orders are from larger companies that are doing it. We also have very good, very good customers, very good clients that buy from us and support us, and we can't be, and that's and can't be more happy for those uh, clients that we have and even obviously the brands I mean at the end of the day like it's supporting us to do what we do and obviously they see a worth or value in supporting it um, and yeah so so, so let me ask you this mm-hmm. all of that why and, and I think that even the customer that is coming to constant practice to patronize the business I think they're if they're not well aware, they're somewhat aware of the effort and time that goes into, you know, um, um, aggregating all of these items and being able to curate it in a way that's, that feels uh, like appealing and a part of the cultural zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that there is a level of uh, uh, wanting to, to lowball you when you're coming with pieces like you come with? Is he, do you think there is a lack of value that they see in your efforts or do you think that is just what this is people that are i mean some people are probably just are mad about what we do because mm-hmm. we charge a lot 
you could say we overcharge at least they say we overcharge um because i mean it, at the end of the day it is a business obviously and we have to make money it's not like we're just doing this for free exactly otherwise i wouldn't be doing it and you would be getting any content you wouldn't get any of the product nobody would be nobody would really be getting the level of taste that we're at least providing i think yeah um i'm trying to think about what else i this this is something that i i think that is has like permeated all through culture to be honest with you um there is a devaluing of work as the 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 uh the employee but then mm-hmm. also the customer you know valuing what the business is providing why because i think there has been um an attack on with western civilization and western society and capitalism as a whole and because of this like socialist and communist like ideology i believe that it's like starting to permeate through culture people aren't valuing work and what it takes to produce something and bring something to the market or be competitive or even be competitive right because why in communism everybody is supposed to be equal it's like this very uh egalitarian type of society but that doesn't work on uh, a, a mass scale I think I think the other thing people get annoyed about prices is because they they understand how we get the product. Mm-hmm. It just comes down to either they don't have the time or they don't want to spend the time looking for it, mm-hmm. and they can maybe see how much we paid for it potentially from old listings. Okay, and then they look at it and they get mad because we're charging X times for it. It's a business, right? If no, at the end of the day, I mean, and you don't have to buy it. At the end of the day, it's just there. You can view it. Just because you can't buy it doesn't mean you have to hate on it. Exactly. If you want the piece, I mean, I'm sorry, but we're running a business. If you want to beat us, you can beat us. But, I mean, we're putting the goddamn hours in at this point. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, it's just, I mean, I told Jonah, too, like, right now we're in that phase where we're, we want to, we're obviously growing, um, but in terms of the people that should be involved, it needs to be a starting five. And I think right now we have two. And to be a starting five, I mean, you know what that means. Of course. And so I, th- this is where your sports back- background comes in at because mm-hmm. you you, under- you understand the, uh, I guess, the, the importance of chemistry and everyone playing a role to get to a common goal. Mm-hmm. And so we've actually had conversations about, you know, just the needs that you needed. Um, for the company so to be able to scale and have success so like what are what are the uh i guess what are the elements you feel is missing and how is important how important is uh chemistry for you know team building like what is what is that for you chemistry is huge i mean jonah jonah and i have pretty similar to the personality so we kind of mesh pretty well we're both pretty laid back um but i'd say we have pretty compatible work ethic in terms of drive to get get shit done yeah um at the end of the day i think it really comes down to if you want to put up we were kind of joking today we're like anybody that anybody that wants to start off or start working the store you're gonna be steaming shit yes that's it if you can't steam well shut the fuck out like if you don't want to spend time doing it honestly like if you don't want to spend time doing that minute boring ass shit and do it right uh, we don't have time for it. it it trickles up it trickles upstream it does steaming goes into product photography. Yes, it does. Which translates into website sales. Thank you. Yeah. And they don't understand that. No. But it but that that comes from retail bootcamp. Like you have to go through that rite of passage to even understand the importance of that within the, the system. 
Mm-hmm. And so that actually reminds me of a quote from Tom Waits, which uh, actually, I think I heard this one in uh, Phil Jackson's book, uh, Eleven Rings. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Tom Waits said, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And that's how I approach everything, because it feels like, you know, if if you are an individual that believes that we're all connected and we're all we are all a, 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 a one large consciousness. Right. Mm-hmm. then you have to believe in the butterfly effect. And then you understand that the way you treat this individual in front of you actually impacts the way that something else happens in the world. And so once you start having that holistic view of the world, you actually have a, all of this in a level of account- accountability inside yourself and like, okay, well, I need to make sure that I'm approaching everything that's in front of me with the same intention that I would if, you know, the, the stakes were on the line, right? Or mm-hmm. when somebody gave me a hundred K opposed to me working for, you know, however many thousand dollars, whatever. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I think that that worldview, that a philosophy, that way of approaching life doesn't, it's not commonplace anymore. So if that is no longer the foundation of the individual, then of course they are coming to you and, 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 and not wanting to uh, take steaming seriously. Of course they're coming to you and not valuing the fact that you had to go source something and, uh, uh, and editorialize it, you know, market it. And this is factoring into the cost that they're paying for. And so, and that's kind of what I was getting to before in terms of just like this level of uh, with this attack on just Western society and capitalism, because capitalism is mostly about production. If you produce well, then you will earn well more times than not, right? And because th- this system here has uh, lowered poverty faster than any other system that we've known in, in the history of humanity. And there is this fallacy that we have as a society that communism, if we all just give everybody the same thing and we chop down anybody that's an outlier and make them like everyone else, then everybody will have equal outcomes. And that's a fallacy. And I think that when you when you understand what's happening socio politically and culturally, then it better helps you understand what's happening across all sectors of society. And that kind of that's kind of like why I was curious because I've been having these conversations with Brian. Uh, uh, we've spoken about these things. Uh-huh. He has that in his code to be able to like see what the signs and symptoms are of capital of communism is, mm-hmm. and he can see it because we had a whole conversation about it. We can okay. see it coming into Western society because it's, it's being ushered in. I think that what businesses has to have to understand is that, you know, this is a new customer with a different dollar than before. Mm-hmm. And that has to be taken into account and then, you know, make necessary adjustments. You know, that's just like my, my take on like the things I'm hearing you say, um, in terms of just consumer sentiment at times, you know, yeah, um, and kind of talking about the um, your question about like the, the the team and everything and the drive and all that stuff. I mean, like I said, uh, the steaming is like day day one starter type stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, like we want those five those five guys or whatever. It's going to be five to ten, whatever. So just every it, again, it's like a team. Everybody's on the same page. You're all working for each other. And kind of the team itself, obviously, is very much more, I guess you could say, communism a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah, communal. Exactly. Communal. communal. In that sense, yes. Um, and, and that's important. But again, everybody needs to understand their role. Thank you. That's the thing. We're not. I'm not giving you a handout. You need to do what you need to do. Exactly. But I'm going to get your back. It, 
right? If something happens. Exactly. It's like, let's sort it out. Let's get it done if something happened. Like when I would play soccer, I would play center back. If my outside left back, Leo, <laughs> got beat. Like I'm busting my ass over there, then he comes back into the middle, yeah. right? If he's outside left back, I go out left, he comes back in the middle because he got beat, yeah. right? You cover yourselves. He got He got beat. He comes back. He covers me. I cover him. It's kind of that mentality. But every again, you you all need to be on the same page in terms of the investment you are putting forth. Yes, um, and that's how you get a, a well operating company. Yeah. So, so what what components do you think you need to implement into the system in order for you to yield the results that you that you're 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 yearning for? Well, right. So right now, I think from a vintage store standpoint, it we're pretty solid. We may need another person um, to maybe, I haven't even really thought this through, but basically my, my brother helps from a, a, a product measuring standpoint. We have the whole kind of operational flow set up mm-hmm. and now it's kind of like getting people into place mm-hmm. where I feel comfortable giving up some of my responsibilities and then eventually Jonah will give up some of his. Yeah. Right. But it, it's, it's quite difficult when you have a specific aesthetic and you do all of the back-end work yourself mm-hmm. to then hand that off because I'm very particular about how I do product photos or how we do reels and stuff like that. And so, I mean, it's just kind of a natural progression. Like, Jono will probably take over product photos at some point, mm-hmm. um, and then we'll need somebody to backfill kind of the stuff Jonah does. Yeah. And then maybe I start focusing on some of the other stuff we're working on, mm-hmm. and then Jonah eventually comes over and does more of that than the vintage store where he kind of oversees the vintage store, and then we're focusing on that other thing mainly. But the store's operationally still going. And we don't have to be still obviously going to be involved, but we're not obviously doing the actual physical task anymore. We're just kind of overseeing, making sure everything's good at that point. At least that's kind of the goal. Um, And we set up that whole operation last year and it's been doing very well. So now it's kind of like getting the pieces in place. Um, I think the other thing would be, um, I don't want to say capital. I feel like we do have that. But at the same time, I don't know. Everybody could always use a little bit more liquidity. Yeah, no, man. It's it's just kind of a fine a fine balance. And I, we we talked about it today on the drive up. I, we don't want to scale. You don't want to scale too fast, but you don't want to do it too slow. You don't want to miss your opportunity. Yep. Because um, debt debt is a fucking horrible thing, and I do not want to be in it. It's yep. all the store is all self funded at this point. Amazing. Um. So every decision we make is our own. There's no investors. There's nothing. It's all 